Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, Richard Moe was in uh, France with his wife, and they were visiting these big, beautiful cathedrals, uh, kind of on this tour, just so majestic. And they're in one of these in France, and they're sitting there and uh, just admiring the beauty, the holiness of it all. And uh, a loud noise happened. So the, the back sanctuary doors were propped open, right, because they wanted tourists to come in. But uh, it was like two motorbikes, very loud, and they look back, and these two young people come in dressed totally in punk, you know, punk clothes, punk hair, the whole thing. And uh, they come in, and they said they came in with kind of a certain swagger, and they thought, okay, you know, we know you're not supposed to judge, you know, a book by its cover, but it seems like these people are acting with irreverence. Anyway, they're wondering what was going to go on, and so they go up right to the front, and this young man and this young woman, and the young woman passes a statue of Mary, and Mary's just got her hands open like this. And the young woman sees this, and she just falls to her knees, and she leans forward, and she embraces the statue of Mary. And because the hands are open, it's like the statue of Mary is embracing her, and this young woman just starts to weep. She breaks down, and she just weeps for, for several minutes. Quietly, then she gets up, and this other man that was with her, and then they just quietly walk out the sanctuary. Now, Richard and his wife, they don't know what happened, but they know something happened. And it had to do with Mary. Well, Mary is a prominent figure throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the nativity stories, and especially we deal with this as we come close to the birth of Christ. We don't talk about her a lot, but it's a good time to talk about her now, especially since the nativity is coming and we're talking about the birth of Jesus. Christmas is, you know, a, a week away, basically. And so she has been variously depicted and upheld through the ages, and she's been venerated and her humbleness, her faithfulness, her obedience, her virtue, all of these things, and quite rightly so. But we're going to reflect a little bit about Mary, about her life and what we can learn from her. Now, Mary uh, was a devout Jewish woman. She was a devout Jewish woman. She would have grown up saying her daily prayers with her family. Uh, she would have recited and memorized certain scriptural passages. Uh, she would have gone through the customs and the traditions, would have gone with weekly syn- to, her, uh, to the weekly synagogue with her family. Uh, it's interesting also that uh, because of archaeological digs and the remains of people in that part of the world in the first century, uh, we know that, you know, Women were on average four foot nine, uh, 99 pounds. And so times change, lifestyles change, diets change, everything else. But we can imagine if she was average, she was like that, her skin would have been darker than we usually uh, imagine. Uh, they would have spoke Aramaic in the home. So she would have called Jesus Yeshua. Yeshua, brush your teeth already, right? Um, <laughs> I'm sure he was very, very good in many different ways, right? Uh, but this is, and also it's interesting, she probably would have had Jesus, and now we're not told a bunch of things about Mary, we're not told the names of her parents in scripture, uh, we're not told uh, how old she was when she gave birth to Jesus, but if she gave birth according to some of the conventions of the time, could have been as early as 14 or 15, 14 or 15, possibly 16, and so if you do the math, she would have been standing at the foot of the cross watching Jesus go through and suffer all of that, she was probably only a few years older than me, she's probably 48-ish Uh, when that happened, right? Now, Mary has also been depicted in different ways through time. Statues, like what I described, uh, paintings for sure, and also increasingly in our modern time in movies. And we've seen her depicted in in different ways in movies. Uh, One movie, I'm going to show you a clip from this, is uh, it's a movie, uh, it's called A Nativity Story, New Line Cinemas, 2006. And, you know, with movies, you've got to take them with a grain of salt because some stuff is historically accurate, some stuff is not. And so you just got to always compare it with the scriptures. But what I like about the nativity story is that uh, it, shows her, it shows her youthfulness, 
Uh, and it also shows her sincerity of spirit. So this is the scene. It's only about two minutes. It's the scene of her being approached by the angel Gabriel telling her about the pregnancy. Let's take a look. with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Come, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. How can this be, since I've been with no man? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power from the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy Offspring should be called the Son of God. Son of God? Mary, even your cousin Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age, for nothing said by God can be impossible. Let it be done to me, according to your word. Mm. Beautiful scene, so you can see, you know, her sincerity of spirit and her youthfulness really comes through that. Uh, one of the things you don't see a lot about Mary and depicted, I think, or celebrated enough, is her courage and her strength, because that is also something about Mary, her courage and her strength. And here is a depiction that you probably haven't seen before. This is from the Tameth Hours, a 14th century illuminated manuscript of the Bible. So here's what's going on. Mary has handed the infant Jesus to the angel Gabriel, and she tackles and subdues Satan, who is here depicted as a beast. Awesome. Like, that is so awesome and powerful. And so, yes, virtuous, humble, obedient, faithful, yes, absolutely, but also very strong. Um, and so here's our question today that we're going to have as we go through the text. What does Mary teach us about having faith today, right? Because these aren't just old stories. These are eternal stories. And so they reach through the pages of time and help us as we think of people to, to learn from as modern disciples. And so specifically also, what does Mary teach us about having faith today when the future is uncertain, because that's something that we have in common with her. When the future is uncertain, what can we learn from her? And, and I'll think, I also think it's just helpful to mention that uh, she's, she's a woman. She's a female. And so when we look at examples to imitate, there's a lot of male figures, right, through the Bible. But, and there's some females as well. Uh, we think of Esther, Deborah, different, different figures. But uh, she is certainly one of them. And so I think we should really pause and, and, and think of her in this way. So we're going to look to the text. We're in Luke 1, verses 26 to 56 today. And if you've got a Bible, uh, you want to pull it out, and you can follow along with the answers in the church app or in the handouts that were on the welcome desk. And a few things before we jump into this text, which is so great to look at at Advent in Christmas. So who wrote it, first of all? 
So this is the apostle, sorry, this is uh, Luke, not an apostle, but he was a companion and co-worker of the apostle Paul. And so he was a doctor, he paid a lot of attention to detail, and chapter 1 tells us that he sets out to write an orderly account and to consult eyewitnesses. And so he's trying to find eyewitnesses, and he's finding them under the inspiration of God, the illumination of God's Spirit, and sets down uh, Luke's gospel. And so here we pick it up, and it starts in verse 26, in the sixth month of what? Well, the previous story was of uh, her relative Elizabeth's pregnancy, and so this is relative to that. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, a couple of things right out of the gate. We hear Gabriel. Only two good angels are named in Scripture, given names, uh, Michael and Gabriel, okay? And Gabriel, we learn verse 19 uh, earlier in the text and also elsewhere, he is someone who stands in the very presence of God and brings messages from God to people. That's what he does. So this is this angelic divine vision. Angel means messenger, messenger of God. From God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is like a backwater town. It's barely on the map. Okay, so we need to know that. This is Gabriel's coming not to some great palace that everybody knows about. We're already kind of seeing some interesting things in this story, and tension will build. Verse 27, she is called a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Okay, so she's a virgin. Okay, we get that. She's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Betrothed, some uh, translations will say engaged. The thing we need to remember is that engagement or betrothal then was different than now. It's basically still legally binding. So to get out of a betrothal or an engagement is the equivalent of getting a divorce. Okay, so it's a very serious thing, you know, most likely a year long. And at the end of that, the marriage would be consummated, right? They would, they would have sex after that period. Um, and then we're told his name. His name is Joseph of the house of David. Now, the house of David is important because we know that, wait a second, the Messiah who is God's chosen king and representative on the earth, Messiah means anointed one, is to come from the house of David. So tension is building in the story, especially for people who know the Old Testament. And the virgin's name, we're told she's a virgin twice, we're clearly supposed to remember that, was Mary. Verse 28, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Which is really an amazing greeting, O favored one. Here's this young girl. She's a Jew living under Roman oppression. She's in a backwater town. What do you mean favored one? She's really close to the lowest rung on society, really. Um, But she's given this greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Notice how many times an angel greet someone, and the response is, do not be afraid, is the first thing that the angel says. Why is that? Because she probably was afraid. And actually, it's one of the things I didn't really appreciate about the Nativity Story movie, although there's many good things about it, I commend it to you, is that Gabriel wasn't very big and and daunting and majestic. It's like, I think if you're going to see an angelic visitor, it's going to be powerful and nearly overwhelming. And so if someone is sad, you say, don't be sad. If they're worried, you say, don't be worried. If they're fearful, you say, don't be afraid. And so I think we're kind of getting a sense of the the grandeur of what's going on here. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves or the Lord saves. So we're already being told things about his function. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
another word for God, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so what we're to see here is that all these prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, about what he's going to do, sit on the throne of his father David, etc. So Mary is being told in uncertain terms that the baby that she is going to give birth to is the Messiah. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. Now, there's no attitude in the voice at all. She's simply wanting to know. It's not like, you know, how this be since I'm a virgin? She's not talking like that. She simply wants to know. Gabriel, my parents have had the birds and the bees talk with me. This is not how it works. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy Son of God. Now, what we're to see here is the father isn't Joseph. The father is God himself. And Mary is the mother. And so this is one of the many indications where Jesus is fully divine, Holy Spirit, fully human, Mary. And so Jesus, as human, right? See how there's so many layers of what's going on here. Fully human, he can experience what we experience and go through everything that we go through except sin. And represent us before God. And as divine, he is the only one who can perfectly pay the price for our sin because he is perfect. He is divine. And sit at the right hand of God and intercede for us. So see how all these things fit together. Verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, I think Gabriel here probably discerns, I'm just guessing here, but based on the text, this is what I'm, I'm guessing, is that <clears throat> Mary's imagination and has been stretched to the limits of its capacity. Like, what? And so Gabriel says two things to her that will give her increasing confidence in what is going on. First of all, here's a sign. Elizabeth, some translations say cousin. It's kind of an ambiguous word. It's just relative. But anyway, Elizabeth, she's barren. She's a senior citizen, and she's pregnant. Okay, so that's one example. Go check that out, and that will give you increasing confidence in what you're seeing here. And then he says, nothing will be impossible with God. And remember that Mary is a devout Jewish woman. So she's reading the scriptures or probably having them read to her um, in the synagogue and maybe by her family and particularly her father. She's memorizing. She knows that this is true, and so he reminds her of a scriptural truth so that she will have that confirmed. And Mary said, behold, this is her response. This is, and I think how it is structured Brings up, this is the center, okay, of the, of the story. Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Imagine this young 14, 15, 16-year-old voice. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, or let it be done to me according to your word. What an incredible, incredible response. She identifies as a servant. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She is willing to be used as a humble servant. Under God, uh, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, commenting on Mary's, what, what, what must have been going through her mind at the time, said, I am only the workshop in which God operates. I love that. I am only the workshop in which God operates. He said, that must have been close to what Mary was thinking and feeling. I just want to be a workshop and God will do his work through me. I'm devout. I want to be true to God. Therefore, of course, let it be done to me according to your word. What happens next? Verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
<clears throat> now, she probably didn't go alone. It was very dangerous to travel. She probably went with some people from her family, uh, you know, especially as a young girl traveling alone in those days, marauding bands, people coming down from the hills, you know, robbers, the whole thing would have been dangerous. Now, why does she go to see Elizabeth? I think three reasons. First of all, she probably wants to have confirmed what Gabriel has said to her. Is she really pregnant? Because that would be amazing. Second, she's going to start to show, okay? Think, think of the logistics of this. And this is a very big deal. Today, this is not such a big deal. But back then, it would have brought, if, if she was found out to be pregnant and she was betrothed to Joseph and Joseph was not the father, it would bring public shame to the family and in a society that functions on shame and honor, that is a big deal. It would have most likely brought ruin to the family business. They're already very close to the wrong. This would have probably put them down into poverty. Uh, and third, if it could be proven that Mary was pregnant uh, and Joseph wasn't the father, if someone could prove adultery under the law of Moses, she could have been stoned to death. And so this is serious, serious stuff. Here's, here's another reason why she's probably gone. She's about to have a baby. If she's 14, 15, maybe 16, she's like, how does that work? How does it occur? Like, what are contractions like? How, how, how do I? No, there's no hospitals back then. How, how does this function? So she's probably going to see Elizabeth, not only to see her pregnant, but also to learn how it's going to happen for her. She needs to know. Verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Right? She knows she's pregnant. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Very, very early in the story, highly exalted titles given to Jesus. She knows that this is her Lord who is in the womb of her younger, almost child relative. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby is leaping for joy. By the way, the baby is going to be who? John the Baptist. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So blessed are you, Mary, for, for believing this and, and, and being a willing servant. And Mary said, now this is her response, and this is a, a famous text of Scripture. It is notoriously called the Magnificat. So where does that come from? So notice how the first line is, my soul magnifies the Lord. So Magnificat is Latin for magnifies. Or my soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, or humble condition of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he was mighty, God, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Notice that all generations will call her blessed. She's called herself humble. It's not because she's done things great. It's because she's giving all credit to God in this, okay? Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. Right? Reverent awe from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Right? So here we're seeing her tap into this idea of the great justice of God. The people who are in great places, the proud and the arrogant, those who have extorted money from others, they will be brought down. God is not mocked. And the humble and lowly and faithful, he lifts up. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, meaning spiritual ancestors, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. End quote. 
And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now do the math. Six months, then three months. So it's probably the case that she has stayed with Elizabeth until Elizabeth has had her baby uh, and, and, and learned and, and seen actually firsthand how this goes down then returns to her home, presumably with some of her family. So we end our look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so with that, we're going to return to that question that we started with. What does Mary teach us about having faith uh, today? And as we look at that, there's a variety of things. And we can look at the example of her virtue, uh, her humility, her faithfulness, her obedience. Yes, all of that stuff. But I want to focus on something which I think lies in and through all of it and which I think reaches through the pages of history for us today. And it's about the nature of true faith. True faith is knowing God, not knowing everything. You see the difference? True faith, okay, so false faith, maybe someone who says they have faith, really, and sometimes we just, it's, it's all about what we know, it's all about, you know, us having all the plans and, 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 and knowing everything, no, 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 true faith, if it's faith, Paul said we live by faith, not by sight, true faith is knowing God, not knowing everything. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't know some things. We are to use our brains and our minds, and we're to study the scriptures, and we are to learn. But there's a difference between knowing some things and knowing everything, and this comes through to the fore. It's magnified, 10 volume, in the story of, of Mary. Okay, let's see how this plays out. True faith is knowing God, not knowing everything. When the angel came to her and provided this announcement, did she know everything that was going to radically change for her family? Well, she maybe guessed some things. Did she know it all? No, she didn't. Her job wasn't to know the answer. Her job was to know the God who knew the answer. And he would reveal exactly what she needed to know when she needed to know it. So she didn't know everything, but she still said, yes, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word, because she knew her father. Okay, second question. Did she know all the suffering that was going to come into the life of her son Jesus as a result of this? No, she didn't. She didn't know the answer, but her job wasn't to know the answer. Her job was to know the God who knew the answer, and he would reveal exactly what she needed to know when she needed to know it. Third example, would she know personally how much change and challenge would occur in her own life as a result of this announcement? Well, she probably could have guessed some things. Would she know with certainty? No. But her job wasn't to know the answer. Her job is to know the God who knows the answer. And he would reveal exactly what she needed to know when she needed to know it. And I think we need this reminder today, especially today, because we live in this time of information overload, data all over the place. We have libraries, we have uh, the internet, we have encyclopedias, we have podcasts, we have digital content, we have news all the time. We have just so much information all the time coming out. And what happens is we live under the illusion that we can actually know more than we probably can know. I can't make that decision about the future. I can't make the decision about this or that or the other thing unless I have all the facts in front of me. Well, sometimes you want some of the facts, but we can never have all of them, and this holds us back, it precludes us, it, it stops us from living in faith because we think we need to know everything when we, it's just never realistic, we're never going to happen. Think of it like this way, think of a toddler and a tourist, okay? A toddler. Now, my kids are, are, are more grown up, so it's been a while since toddlers have been in the house. Um, but toddlers go around, they can speak and they can do some things. I remember a conversation, I forget which one of our kids it was, but uh, they were like, what day is it? Um, 
And I said, uh, it's Saturday. And they're like, oh, I thought it was Tuesday. How do you mix up Tuesday and Saturday? They are very different days. We're doing different things. Like Tuesday and Wednesday, I could get. Like they're, they're basically the same. But Tuesday and Saturday, but here's the thing with a toddler, they don't need to know. As long as mom's with me or as long as dad's with me, I'm fine. They're going to make sure I get to swimming on time. They're going to make sure there's food in the fridge. They're going to tuck me in and remind me to clean my teeth. They just need to know the parent and that the parent is trustworthy. That's, that's the main thing for them. Think of a tourist. Here's another example. So a tourist is going to some foreign country. They'll go on this hike. This is on their bucket list. They're really going to enjoy this. It's going to be great. Uh, but they don't know what shoes to wear. They don't know what altitude they need to reach by 4 p.m. They don't know the food situation, all that stuff. But they sleep at peace the night before. Why? Because they got a great tour guide. And that tour guide knows everything and is going to provide all those responses. So toddler and tourist, this is kind of like us. True faith is knowing God, not knowing everything. We can trust God even when the future is full of question marks. Knowing God. I don't know what my future is going to hold. It's going to be uncertain. There's going to be some things that maybe even are going to bring fear into my life, but I know that I know God, and He is wise, and He is trustworthy, and He is loving, and He is merciful, and His promises and His word are dependable, and He is providential, and He is caring, and He is good, and He has adopted me into His family, and that's really the fundamental thing I need to know. And so my question for us is, what's holding you back, right? Mary said that beautiful response, I'm the Lord's servant, may it be done to me according to your word. What's holding you back from true faith? And maybe you're living in faith, and that is great, and that is wonderful, and I commend you for that. Maybe some people have been going to church for a while, and they, they haven't really committed to knowing the Lord in Jesus. And this is, and this is the moment where, wait a second, if I'm going to go forward into this uncertain future, He's what I need to know. He is the one I need to know. That's the most important thing, and I'll be able to face anything because of that. True faith is knowing God, not knowing everything. And maybe other, other people, you're already serving God, and that is great. And this is a confirmation of that. But maybe there's some issue that you're struggling with, and you're sitting on the fence, and you're just not going to trust God's word yet because you think you need more information, or you need a level of certainty Maybe there's some corner in your life, some chapter in your life, some decision, and you're really reluctant to let God into that. I just need more information. I need to put that off. I need to delay that. No, no, no. True faith is knowing God, not knowing everything. Our job isn't to always know the answer. It's to know the God who knows the answer, and he will reveal to us what we need to know when we need to know it. All right, I started off with Richard Moe. He and his wife, those sanctuaries in France, remember? Beautiful. And that young woman dressed in punks, and she comes up to the front, and she just breaks down weeping into the arms of that statue of Mary. And he's like, I don't know what happened, but I know something happened. And so let me just take a guess. Maybe in that moment, she, she knew that her future was going to be okay, and not because she had all the answers, but because as a child of God, she was in the arms of the one who does. So we thank God for Mary, for her example, and we use this as an opportunity. What is true faith? It's knowing God, not knowing everything. How is God using you as a servant of Jesus Christ? Praise be to God. Amen.